I'm Yasi Salek, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. What's up, bad babies? I'm Jenna Robinson. I'm flying somewhat solo today because our beloved Mallory Rubin is on tour with the Rewatchables live shows. So she is out of town for the next couple days, and hopefully you get to catch her in one of the various fun and exciting cities that she will be in. We will be back together on Friday to cover the Percy Jackson finale to laugh and cry and pull out our hair about what happens in the Percy Jackson finale. But in anticipation of that finale, we have a special little episode for you today, which is a conversation that I had with Percy Jackson staff writer Daphne Olive. Daphne, phenomenally brilliant, intelligent, wonderful person who I've known for a long time. When I first met she was a, a podcaster about black sales. So you will admire the sound of her microphone uh, that she uses in this interview. She worked as a staff writer and then on season two as a story editor on The Old Man, the Jeff Bridges show that's on FX. She's just like a Renaissance woman. She's a jewelry designer. She is the mom of an incredible like young woman. Like She just does a million things. Um, I'm so impressed and dazzled by her. So I asked her a bunch of questions. We went off topic a little bit, but mostly we talked about Percy and then also some fate and prophecy stuff and some a little bit about the old man and all kinds of stuff that was going on. So this is my conversation with Daphne. We'll be back, as I said, on Friday with Mallory. You can always email us, hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com with your Percy Jackson finale responses to your responses to this interview, any questions, comments, or concerns you have, any Apple thoughts you might have, anything. The email is always open. As far as spoilers, uh, Daphne obviously knows way in the future what happens to Percy Jackson. We kept it contained to... Everything we've seen on the show so far, so everything up through the penultimate episode of the season. I haven't seen the finale. Daphne did not want to spoil anything, the finale, for me. Um, And then, you know, book knowledge just from really the first book. Vague, maybe light touches on future books, but nothing really serious. So if you're caught up with the show, you should be all set to listen to this and not get spoiled on anything like I said, we're back on Friday with Mallory. And until then, bad babies, enjoy this conversation with Daphne Olive. Daphne, I'm so happy to have you here. I want to, I'm going to be selfish and start with the thing that I can't stop thinking about, which is the introduction of Poseidon on screen and his interaction with Sally Jackson in the penultimate episode. Can you? This is wholly invented for the show. It's not in the book. Can you talk about your decision to put this in here? I was like gasping and, you know, 
clutching a pillow and just like shrieking. And I was so, it was like so powerful, so dynamic, so upsetting, so uplifting, all these things all at once. So can you talk about like the idea behind knowing that scene, the steps to making it? Tell me, tell me everything. I would love to. I mean, first of all, I have to start by saying that I'm so excited to be here because you have been and continue to be my favorite podcaster. So <laughs> You're biased. You're so biased. I am so biased. It's true. Um, okay. Yeah. So whew, this, this is like, I mean, it's funny. Like it's, it's a scene that I'm just so pleased with. It turned out so well, which is none of that has to do with me personally. So I get to say it exactly like that. But I think that, you know, this, the choice probably started with like, early, early, early days in the writer's room, um, the thing that, you know, everyone's been saying in interviews, but it's true, is like, there's a beauty in adapting a book that was in close first-person narrative that you, you know, one per- the inside of one character's head really, really well. And now you get to develop the inside of everyone's heads. And... And it's so, it was so much fun because we we only ever met all of these other characters, including Sally, including Poseidon, from the perspective of a boy, you know, from between the ages of 12 and 16. And so Sally for us felt like one of the people we really wanted to flesh out for multiple reasons. Um, one of my favorite reasons is because... Um, and Rick Riordan says this all the time, is that Sally is based on his amazing wife, Becky, who I adore. And Rick and Becky were in the writer's with her, room with us all the time. So, like, we always, you know, got to, like, hash that out with them, which was really fun. And, but, but especially with the first season, because she is, she is the quest for Percy in so many ways. I mean, he has, you know, by the end, he kind of has multiple quests, but but she's the in- initial quest, and 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 she's his mom. I mean, she raised him. She she made him into the person he is. Um, also, one of the things the book offered us was this this uh, this truth that Sally kept him home with her. I mean, okay, also sent him to boarding school, but Sally kept him away from the mythological world longer than most demigods. And so that was kind of a data point that we had for like starting to figure out like, why did she do that? Why, you know, because he, you know, a 12-year-old kid doesn't know why his mom does stuff. Like, so like we had to start filling in those blanks of like, who is she? Why did she make these choices? There are things we learn about her in later books that also, you know, another benefit of doing adaptation of a series that already exists is like we could pull stuff from anywhere. And especially if it's really stuff that became important to the overall five book story, it made so much sense for us to like, you know, perhaps Rick thought of something in book three, let's say about Sally or 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 book five, that like we could, you know, that ha- it, not only can we pull that for it has to be true in book one, right? In season one. Right. Right. So like there's certain things that we learn later about her that also inform her decisions. And sorry, I'm talking really wide way around this question, but no, I mean, I I mean, 
genuinely another question I have was just like Sally Jackson go. Okay. So like this is awesome. great. I'm, but I mean I'm the delighted. two. I mean Disney things obviously linked. But yeah. So like so like all of this ended up fleshing out these these new aspects of her and her experience. And so like I think that scene came a lot. I mean, if you've seen the scene, you can see it's it's about her choices to keep Percy with her. And, you know, just a basic TV thing, because you can't be in someone's head, they need someone to speak to. This is a very unromantic way to talk about an extremely romantic scene, but but <laughs> but, um, but this idea that like that Poseidon, he wasn't not paying attention. Right. So like you get that in book one, right? You have that about like the narrative talking about, you know, or Percy remembering the the faces in the water and like the sense that like somebody was watching him. They were they weren't unaware of him. I mean, also they weren't unaware of him because he's a child of the big three and all these these big questions. But so it just made so much sense to like. I don't know, just create a moment like that. Like create a moment where she got to speak to someone. Like I love that he, uh, you know, that that they ended up writing it, that that he said, like, you don't have anyone else to talk to, so you might as well say it, which is like so true. Like her loneliness. You're like logistically, logistically from a screenwriting perspective, that's true, but also from a character exactly. perspective. Yeah. It's just like her loneliness, the 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 depth of her sacrifice, right? Like had she not fallen in love with a god and and had not just a demigod, but a child of the big three. Like, so which, you know, is is a heavier burden. And just, yeah, the depths of the loneliness, the hard, how hard it was to make these decisions, to give these two a moment where they could speak to each other about it. And but but with all of the tension of like they can't even look at each other because they know they can't be together. Was it written on the page? They don't like where does that they don't look at each other idea come from? I believe it was written on the page. I mean, you and I, you and I both love romance. So <laughs> that's just good, that's just good <laughs> romance stuff. But but I think part of it is, you know, it's to show how hard it was for all of them. Like that that the mm-hmm. circumstance, I mean, just to get into plot stuff, like the circumstance of he had to be kept secret. Like there was an there was an agreement between the three brothers that they would not have children. And we know Thalia's story. Like we know that that was, you know, it was deadly to these children to exist. So like for him to, like, even if he wanted desperately to be part of his life, although, you know, it is text in the show in a way that not in the books, but in the show that like he told Hermes that that's doesn't work out well. Um, well, and it is text in the books that actually in Hermes' story it doesn't work out well. <laughs> but but um, we had to recognize that that these parents had to make whatever decisions they are with all of that knowledge. And so for him to show up there is actually dangerous. But he did it to support her. And so it's like, you know, there's just all this tension, especially for people who've read the books, but hopefully also for people who haven't, all of this tension of this situation where he cannot, he could not at that point before he had claimed Percy, if he was ever going to claim Percy, he could not treat him like a son because that would have 
endangered him. There's so many things I want to talk about. I do want to say on the Sally Jackson front, something that I love, thinking of all her moments with Percy in flashback, et cetera, is how much you're, you've highlighted like her girlhood as you know, because to your point, we're seeing her as she's the mom in a, in a book series that is narrated by, you know, a, a kid, a, you know, an Allison kid. Um, but when we meet her sitting in the rain, listening to Olivia Rodrigo, or when she talks about like, you know, meeting this man that she fell in love with on the beach or this scene here with him and this like yearning, there's so much honoring who she was before Percy and who she is outside of the mom lens. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's not a question. That's just an observation. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad that came through. A question. <laughs> a question um, is, I know you and I both love Toby so much uh, in general. Can you talk about why he was the right casting for this Poseidon? And then I want to talk about some of the other gods in casting as well. Okay. Well, I have to I have to say, I mean, in full disclosure, I experienced the casting of Toby Stevens uh as a as a Toby Stevens fan because I'm not one of the people who makes those decisions. <laughs> right, but why was he right for me? Uh, I mean, I guess is this where I get to say like everyone in the world should watch Black Sails cuz, you know, it was bound to happen sooner or later. You held out longer than I thought you would, Def. So, um, record, record. Yeah, honestly, I think it is. Um, it's uh, everyone should watch Black Sails, and one of the main reasons is that Toby Stevens uh, is—he's like freakishly good at at showing emotion. In a way that w- could be con- could be experienced as quiet. I mean, he's also good at showing emotion in very not quiet ways. But one of the things that I am constantly just flabbergasted by in his skill set is that he can show emotion without doing much of anything. It seems, and yet. You know, so like I was so excited. I was like, the rest of the world gets to experience how Toby Stevens can break your heart in two minutes without like even saying much or moving, <laughs> like, which is amazing. So I feel like that is is why he was perfect for this because um, in the books, Poseidon actually does not have. There are gods that have larger roles than him. <laughs> weirdly, yeah, like yeah. more speaking time and stuff. And uh, I mean. I don't know what we're going to do if in future seasons, if we get future seasons, hopefully. Um, but to be able to experience, you know, to show this much emotion about things that we don't, we didn't really want them talking about, right? We don't want them being like, oh, you were like, remember that thing that we talked about when he was born about how it's dangerous for him and such, you know, it's like, we didn't want that. That's not romantic. So he's just the right person to, to make you feel feel all of the stuff that isn't spoken but is needs to be there. And honestly, Virginia, I can't even begin. Like she, she has like, I was so excited. I didn't, I was never on set when she was there. I was so excited when I got to meet her at the premiere because she was the person I most wanted to say, hi, nice to meet you. You broke my heart <laughs> in a million pieces and I could not be more happy about it. She's just amazing. She's amazing. 
She's phenomenal. Uh, it's been really enjoyable watching the longtime book readers react to the show. Um, you know, their ups and their downs or whatever it may be. But I think one of the most enjoyable, delightful reactions is the Poseidon haters, yeah. the people who are like Poseidon's a deadbeat dad and like <laughs> yeah. terrible and we hate him and stuff like that. And then Toby Stevens like waltzes in and they're like, oh, but maybe <laughs> I was hasty. <laughs> maybe there's something else there. On that adaptation front, there are far more gods showing mm-hmm. up in in the first season than there are in the first book uh, in, in various adventures and interactions. What do you think that does to the story to add uh, a number of other members of the Pantheon into the main plot? Well, it was it was things that we talked about a lot, as you can imagine. I mean, this was these were huge topics in the writer's room. Um, I think the goal, um, and you know, and my greatest hope is that what we manage to do with that is both not exactly Easter eggs. Like, so I'm going to now separate this into like how book readers experience the show or how I hope they do and how I hope non-book readers experience the show. So our hope was that for the book readers, like, again, like I said about stuff with Sally, like there are things, you know, like in any book series, because one of the greatest fallacies I think in the world is that people think that somehow a writer is more genius if they have if they know everything they're going to do ahead of time rather than learning from their own process. <laughs> but so there are things that that Rick figured out along the way to get to like I honestly Joanne I'm so excited for you to get to the end of the series that so we can talk about it. It's so good. Um so the book, yeah, the series, book series or like the, I'm just I okay, cannot yeah. wait for the day when you and I get to talk about that because it's just beautiful. Um, so, you know, not only were we trying to honor that, right. And, and, and have a mutual experience with the book readers like, yes, we know where this is going in a way that Rick probably didn't when he wrote the first book so that we can bring things that are relevant to the later part of the story. And especially the end of the story, we can bring those elements in earlier so that we can show how they influenced the overall story, the direction of the story. So, and honoring them, honestly, like, you know, honoring what the book readers love about the story by showing that all of that stuff was happening, right? Like when you take the book series as a whole, even when an author doesn't know where they're going to go through the whole five books or whatever, um, all of those things in theory, just like all of those people had their own thoughts and experiences outside of Percy's experience of them. All of those other parts of the story were happening in the timeline of the first book, right? So like Hermes and Luke were having the relationship they were having or story in relation to each other that they were having. All these other things were were happening in the world, even if Percy didn't perceive them. Um, And they're all relevant to where the story is going. So like that's for... I mean, I guess in a way I'm saying this for both groups, like for the non-book readers, I think it's very important for us knowing where the story is going to start laying those tracks. Like just like giving you the information, if you didn't read the books, these bits of information that are important for you to understand the entire arc of the story and the individual arcs of the characters. So like it's kind of a dual thing there. Um, And I understand that it's, you know, 
there are people who who don't like deviations from text. Our hope and and you know and our hopes and dreams were to that every change we made, if not in the exact wording or experience or like or or plot of the text was to always be honoring the spirit of the text. Um, and to be perfectly honest, like one of the fun thing, one of the things I didn't anticipate was how much Rick Riordan enjoyed playing yeah. in that playground with us. Like that's what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, it's like what a what a gift for a writer who, you know, who has written prolifically these incredibly popular books, but you and I have written in our lives and what a dream to like have like a slight do-over on something that you are proud of and people love and you're like, great, but were I to do it again, these are the seeds I would have planted earlier just so that it all feels like it pays off in a satisfying way. Um, that's a gift to, to a writer. And like, I imagine, I mean, any adaptation, and we go through this all the time when we talk about, you know, Rings of Power, what is House of the Dragon doing, and all that sort of stuff. There will be book purists who are upset at any deviation from the book. And I'm really happy on your behalf that you have Rick in the writer's room. And there's just this sort of like coat of protection of like you had, you know... <laughs> the blessing of, of Uncle Rick himself as you're, as you're making this. But I, yeah, I want to ask you, like, this is not a legal uh, court of law, <laughs> so I'm not cross-examining you, but I don't want you to feel like I'm asking you to speak for mm -hmm. someone, but from your observation of Rick, like what were the aspects that he was most excited to dig into in a different way than he had on the page? he was happy to like go in with us and pull things apart and analyze them and figure out how to adapt them for television, which is very different because you can, I mean, ideally you don't just have voiceover, so you can't be in people's heads. So you have to find new structures for, for expressing what's in people's heads. Um, the other thing, like, honestly was so nice is he, as much as he wanted to play in the playground, he also was like, very politely setting guardrails for us, you know? So like we felt comfort because it was like, okay, we can like, we can play with stuff and we know that he's going to be like, no, this is your guardrail. Like that's now you've gone too far. Like, yes, you that's have enough. to have crusty. Yeah. <laughs> like, no matter what, like was, there were things like that where he was just like, <laughs> you're like, you must have yeah. this, 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 and this, because I know, I know my fans and these are the things they will most want. Uh, I think, yeah, I think he was very excited to to expand Sally. Um, I think he was very, I mean, I know he was very excited about the casting because unlike me, he was very much a part of that, you know, completely. No casting happened without him being involved in it. So he was very excited about that opportunity. Um, he really happy to like, like, <laughs> For the opportunity to kind of erase the movies <laughs> from, <laughs> yep. so that was yeah. To go back to that idea of like what a gift for him mm -hmm. to get to sort of tinker with a story that he's already proud of. The double gift of still still licking his wounds from like a truly truly an adaptation that just like really didn't feel like it got it. It didn't get it. It did not. You get know, it. and that's such a hard thing as a as an author to see. You know, oh my my book's gonna be a movie. Oh no, what is that? Um, yeah. Okay, let me ask you 
other than Toby Stevens as Poseidon, which is the God depiction that you have personally taken the most delight in or felt like really underlined something that you want to make a point with in the story? <laughs> uh, I mean, that's hard because, um, uh, okay, book, <laughs> book readers will understand what I'm saying. Uh, Hermes and Hades are both crucial to the end. I mean, I think the end game, I think I can say great prophecy like that, you know, that's, that does, we do not use those words. We're going to talk about prophecy in a second. Yet, but, um, so for me personally, it was very exciting to be able to lay those tracks. Um, Hades in particular is probably one of my favorite characters in the books. So just, Jay's casting is so wild and so good. Like, he's so good in, oh in his little interaction that we got it's, with him. It yeah. was so great. Incredible. And it was just like, it was so funny because I remember, I remember like reading the script and being like, oh, I love this like idea that his voice is so different than the Kronos voice. So like, that's how, that's part of how Percy figures it out. It's just literally he sounds so different. But then the version that he came up with was like above and beyond any anything I could imagine delighting me. It's just, it's so good and so funny and weird. And it's like, I think like, even though he's quite different, I think I feel like then, then the, how I would imagine or how I did imagine the voice of, of Rick's Hades, I think he's so, it's so perfectly aligned with the humor of the book and the voice of the book. And just like, uh, it's just very good. <laughs> Like, I get to enjoy that also as a fan. It's just so much fun. I seldom cahoot. I seldom cahoot is yeah, it's top tier. Quite good. Top tier line. <laughs> I cannot take responsibility for that one, so I definitely get to just enjoy that with everyone else. <laughs> okay, you mentioned, let's just keep it prophecy. No need to put a, an adjective in front of it. Prophecy in general. We have, we've already experienced prophecy in the show, um, and we got that line from Percy in episode five about fate and free will and the choices you made. You texted me like a week and a half ago or whatever about how you want to talk to me about fate versus free will in Lord of the yes. Rings, I believe or it was. Or in general. Um, so, <laughs> in general, just in general, but inspired by Lord of the Rings. Um, so let's talk about fate versus, versus free will. And like when you're working, when you're operating in a story that is so prophecy dependent, because, you know, there's a little prophecy at the beginning of, of mm -hmm. book one and and that that operates throughout this season, but we are by no means done with prophecy uh in in as the series goes forward. So this is a very prophecy-based story. How do you wrap your head around that idea of fate versus free will when you think about this story? <laughs> so like so there's like fate, you know in the world, right? The philosophical concept of fate, which manifests in different ways, in different mythologies and philosophies and people's personal views of how, what their life means. Um, the thing that's interesting to me, I will get there, I promise, but the th I'm getting a roundabout way. The thing that's interesting to me about these books, we are doing this adaptation of a book series, right? The book series is an adaptation of Greek mythology. Like, that's how I see the book series. Um, and so fate is obviously something that exists 
throughout Greek mythology. I mean, the Perseus story in particular. And that was like one of the ways that I serve the collective that is the writer's room is I love to um, bring in other aspects of the Greek myths that we can use. Like that's, that's just, you know, it's like uh, a writer's room is just basically a bunch of people ideally who get along in our case. Yes. And everyone brings in tools from their (laughs) personal toolkits and then it becomes Mm -hmm. like kind of a buffet of tools. Um, And, and that's one of mine. I am not as thorough a researcher as you are, which is one of the things I've always (laughs) enjoyed about you, (laughs) but I do my best. And, and, Fate has always been something I love. Like, I I don't know why. Like, honestly, I, I still haven't quite unpacked why. Like, that is one of the aspects of story that makes me so happy. Um, and and it's interesting in, in this story in particular, I think maybe because they're kids. Like, because we don't often, um, we don't have, often have, like, kids talking about fate. Like it feels a lot of times like something that it's a later in life thing. Um, and, mm, mm-hmm. but one of the things mm. about the Perseus story that I really latched onto, which I, I hadn't thought about a lot, like the actual Perseus story, um, is that feels very relevant to the book series in ways I won't get into because of spoilers, but but like one of the things that's always been so interesting to me about fate in Greek mythology is that when people try to avoid their fate, they often not, I mean, they're going to get there, right? Because it's their fate. But the choices they make in trying to avoid the fate often get to a worse version of that fate than had they made different choices. And the funny thing is like, I found about this about the Perseus story in a different way. Like if you just Google Perseus, it's like not focusing on the grandfather. But like weirdly, (laughs) weirdly for the other show I work on, for The Old Man, I've done a lot of research on twin mythologies. I know this may not have been a direction you thought I was going to go with this. So like, so I talk about, I've done a lot of research on twin mythologies for The Old Man. And his grandfather in some versions of the Perseus myth was a twin. And in some of those versions where he's a twin, he and his brother split the kingdom that their father had. And in some, the grandfather had the kingdom and the brother was kind of like out of the picture. So his choice, I'm going to try to tell this in a short way. His, so the grandfather's choice to cast his grandson in the sea to try to avoid the fate of having his grandson kill him actually led to the the line of his brother becoming the line that ruled Argos going forward. So let's say, like, I mean, which I, for me is the perfect encapsulation for how I look at fate, and and I think that aligns well with with the book series is like fate's whatever is fated, whatever is prophesized, which are basically the same thing, right? Prophecy is just the speaking through an oracle of fate. So. Whatever is fated is going to happen. Obviously, this is something we talk about a lot with oracles. They speak in riddles, you know, poetry, however you want to look at it. So there's also the thing of like, do how do, you know, if you try try too hard to understand it, you can also misread it, right? 
But if you try to avoid fate, and this is a very important thing about the big picture story in Percy Jackson, if you try to avoid fate, you're going to get there either way. But let's say with Perseus, the mythological Perseus, had his grandfather said, okay, that's a bummer, but that is my fate. My grandson will kill me in one way or another. I don't know how. Had he not thrown them into sea, had he raised his grandson and like, and had a relationship with him and taught him to be a king after him, his line would have continued to rule Argos. God, I hope it's Argos. I keep forgetting. But, but his, his line would have continued to rule his kingdom rather than it go to his brother. But because he cast his grandson in the sea and Perseus had his whole story and was the king of somewhere else and didn't want to inherit a kingdom because he killed his grandfather by accident, the grandfather not only lost a relationship with his daughter and his grandson, not only was killed by his grandson in the end because that was his fate, but he also lost his kingdom. So I think that is the perfect depiction of how fate and free choice interact with each other. That's a really interesting and satisfying way to think about it. It's so different from the way that I've always interpreted those kinds of mm-hmm. self-fulfilling prophecies and fates in in Greek mythology because I've always taken it as like let's the the easiest example is Oedipus. And what happens with Oedipus in you know marrying his mother, killing his father, all that sort of stuff, I feel like doesn't happen if they don't abandon him right. in the woods. If they raise, you know what I mean? It's sort of like, it's to me, it, I always felt like those various prophesized fates were taking into account the psychology of humans and how they would <laughs> react. So whatever they're trying to do to avoid it is sort of like woven into the prophecy in the first place. Like, I know when you hear this, you're going to leave your son in the middle of the woods to die. And that's how it's going to happen. That's how, because I just don't, like, what's the version of the story where they raise Oedipus and he, you know, fucks his mom and No, it's, and no, no, it's totally you know true. I mean? These like, are two ways to, I mean, we're basically, we're basically in the yeah. matrix right now, right? We're, we're, we're talking about that spoon, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. It's it's fascinating to me because like when we talked when Mallory and I first really sort of dug into that when we were talking about Rings of Power and Lord of the Rings that story we're talking about how how unsatisfactory it is if a story is just faded if it's just prophesied like how uninteresting that is to be like well okay if you know every single step that the person is going to take to the end goal then like what's where's the where's the dramatic tension here if we know what's going to happen at the end um so i almost think oftentimes with those with especially the greek versions of it it's the struggle against that provides the tension uh cuz you're just being like dragged by fate uh down your path um or um you know i think but i think the way that tolkien thinks about it is more like you know I see the end goal in in the far distance, be it like, you know, Mount Doom, let's say that's that's where you're going, but there are many paths to get there. And you get to decide which which road you take, which is sort of your point. You could you can keep your kingdom, be it Argos or anything <laughs> or, or else. Or it actually is. is. Sorry, I your, forgot that. <laughs> your actual bloodline. <laughs> or you can fucking toss a baby into the sea. It's up to you what you want to do. So yeah. 
Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, again, this is my perspective. I'm not speaking for the writer's room. I'm definitely not speaking for Rick. But it, I, I felt like when I read his books, like it felt like it, it resonated very well with the way I've always thought about these things. So I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's actually, I won't name names, but an actor from Black Sails who's not in Percy Jackson. And she, uh, she was like, I hate fate. I hate the idea of fate. And I was like, well, you know, I said the thing I just said to you, but I said, you know, I think all, I do believe this generally, not just about fate, all stories, any story that resonates, resonates because it is like at, it is touching the core of human experience, right? Because like, what else do we want to look at but ourselves ultimately? And, (laughs) and I mean, there's one thing we're all fated to, right? We're all going to die. And no, I was not the person inspiring, who inspired those lines for Percy, but. (laughs) <laughs> but we are all. See, he said it like th- he said it like three times. But we all we are all kind of dying. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that is that is fate. Like there is a fate without an oracle. We don't need an oracle to tell us there is a thing we are all fated to. And yet, even though every single human being has this shared fate, we all make unbelievably different choices with the time we have. Right. Thank you, Peter Jackson. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was Tolkien. Mm-hmm. I think that was Peter Jackson. Right. I think yeah. It was. yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I just feel like that's that's ultimately the basis of where I come at it. And the Perseus, my interpretation of the Perseus grandfather story is is came out of that. It just it also it just aligned so beautifully with something that I kind of knew was true without knowing it was true. Is that we? It's it's like you said. It's the path you take. Like there's, there's, there's the end thing that is faded. There might be points along the way that are faded, but even between those points, there's always choices. And those choices define how you affect the world, whether you do good, whether you don't do good, whether you do nothing, whether you, you know, like another version of that was that Perseus's grandfather could have just like locked himself in a tower, right? If I lock myself in a tower, my grandson can't kill me. Like that would have led to a very different story. Somehow he, his grandson was still would have ended up killing him. We don't know how, but like, but everything in between would have been so different. Well, and it's, it's interesting because I think whether it's uh, us living our lives with the death deadline looming <laughs> or um, whatever, whatever the case may be, there are things you can do to hasten your fate, right? Hasten it or, de- or delay it, um, but you can't delay it indefinitely it's coming at some point okay let's let's move off this fairly uncheery <laughs> subject that we have wandered ourselves into uh, um i will say um we don't love committing to shows too far in advance but i will say that like one of the tropes courses that we're thinking of doing in the near future inspired by a couple of emails we got from listeners uh is something that's like fellowships slash golden trio golden trio is the name i know i'm not gonna give you a harry potter pop quiz i promise (laughs) but harry hermione and ron are called the golden trio in that book so this idea of like the power of three you could look at it buffy there's a golden trio Mm -hmm. like this this crops up a lot in storytelling certainly jk rowling did not um invent it but i was just wondering if you want to talk about when you think about these three kids, or I'm sorry, Grover's not a kid, but like these three individuals, he's 24. On thank the you road. very much. <laughs> 24. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you think about them on the road, and you think about their particular strengths and weaknesses, and how they complement each other, and how they how their relationship grows, like 
what what is most important to you? Are you referencing other like adventuring relationships? Like what are you thinking about when you're putting that dynamic together on the screen? Well, I can't speak for all of the writers in the room about what threesomes no. they're thinking about. Weirdly, weirdly, because I am the person who's like bring in themes from mythology and such, I honestly have to say I did not think about other threesomes when I talk about them. I mean, not in that way. Like, like you think about balance, but it wasn't, there wasn't like mm-hmm. a different three characters I was thinking about, but like we think about balance. And again, with this, you know, this thing of, of the adaptation part is like, we had all this room now because, because Grover and Annabeth, we only knew them through Percy's eyes. So we like had all this latitude to kind of, to figure out you know, the thing you do when you're reading is you do, you always make those connections, even if you're just, you know, in first person POV, like you, you, you're going to always, like your brain will start like fleshing out those people. Um, and so we got to do that. Um, so, right. So like, oh shoot, I always forget what it's like. There is a model of threes that I love where it's like the one is the the analytical one. Oh goodness. What is, I've forgotten what that is, but there is like, like, it's I don't like, know, this, it like it's a psycho- psychology thing. I, I think it might. Yeah. I think it is. A, but it's like, it's used a lot in story structure that I have thought about when I used to be a podcaster and analyze black sales because black sales has a lot of threesomes of all sorts. <laughs> I know you, kept, you keep using the word threesome and I want to be like, Daphne, maybe we shouldn't use the word threesome, but it's worth it to get to black right. sales because right. those a are trio. A trio. We'll say a trio. Yes. Um, and right. But I know like people talk about this with like, you know, with like, uh, Spock and Kirk and Bones where you have like the analytical one, you have the one who's like the one who's like action and then the one who's like the heart. Right. So, you know, Percy Jackson has that exactly. Like that's. Mm -hmm. Buffy Vampire Slayer right. has it. Yeah, uh, Harry Potter yep. has it. Like 100. percent Yeah, it's it, that's a fascinating. Uh, again, we'll do a whole podcast right. episode of this, and I will try. I will spend some time researching and getting to the bottom of like the origins of this. And um, but I just I think that's interesting that it sort of echoes down. I mean, I only went back to the 90s with Buffy, but like, well, I'll I'll take Buffy as an example as I want to do and say this that like, and you don't need to know anything about the show to know this, but. The, the trio in that show is Buffy, Willow, and Xander. That's our golden uh, trio. And people come and people go. People get added. It expands. It contracts. All that sort of stuff. But that's the core. And one of my favorite, like, I was just a, I was just like a baby, but like a TV fan, listening to the audio commentary on the DVDs of, like, my favorite uh, television show. And it was like my first concept of a writer's room came from this one a DVD commentary where they were talking about a line that like, you know, uh, Joss Whedon for all his ills, like we don't need to get into it right now, but like, you know, was the driving writing voice on that show. And he was like out for the day. So the writer's room, like we're putting a scene together without Joss there. And he comes back and they read the scene back to him. And they were, they were like looking at the line allocation and they're like, Oh, uh, you know, Willow doesn't have any lines in the scene and Xander has too many lines, so let's just give some of Xander's lines to Willow. And Joss comes back into the room and he's like, 
these are Xander lines. Why is Willow saying <laughs> Exactly. And it just like, it like blew my Cause mind because I was just sort of like, yeah, it's like you can't just like put lines from yeah. one. And especially if you're doing the the, the head, the heart, the, you know, the noive or like whatever you want to say, um, like you can't just slop, swap one for another. But it was like, it was such like an insight into a writer's room dynamic where there's like a keeper of the flame and they're like, no, you just can't. That's not what we do here. We don't just swap <laughs> lines around from characters. You can't do that. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I think the, I love the dynamic uh, on, on both on the page and on the screen of these three mm-hmm. and, you know, something that Mal and I have talked about uh, a bit. And again, this is the freedom that you've been talking about in terms of not always being in Percy's perspective is like, people peeling off, Grover staying behind while Annabeth and Percy do this or that or the other thing, or Annabeth leaving the underworld early, so it's just Grover and Percy doing this thing. Can you talk about some of the thought behind that, about, like, giving them little, like, twosome adventures inside of their, uh, not threesome, we'll call it a trio? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, so- <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, and part of that was to, I, you know, I feel like to flesh things out. Um, I mean, sometimes it's just intuitive. You just kind of feel what is the right way to do it. I mean, collectively feel like, you know, part of the beauty of a writer's room is like for us, um, to the extent that we can remember, it's like so many of these episodes exist in multiple forms that were discussed. Um, But I mean, especially, I felt like especially Grover um, really needed his own story more. Like the, the Grover in the books is delightful and we love him. And, and I, I honestly just wanted to get to know him better. And Arian is unbelievable. He's just so good. (laughs) (laughs) He's so much fun. Um, but so it was just really fun to be able, like, it was like, it was interesting. Um, on a, on a different podcast, the, a fan podcast that I did an interview, like they asked about his fatal flaw because Grover doesn't have a fatal flaw in the books. And, and it's just, and I think that's part of it is like Grover later in the story does have more kind of his own quest, his own hero story, but he is a hero, right? Like he, you know, okay, we could argue that, you know, things didn't go great with Dahlia, but like but he tried, you know, he just, he cares so much and he is a hero. He is a protector of demigods um, and will be other things later as well. And, and so it's just, it just, I think it just felt so important to all of us to have Grover have a story and not be just part of Percy's story or Percy and Annabeth's story, you know? And sometimes also, I think, you know, sometimes just a scene with two people is 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 more conducive to like really um deep like talking about your feelings and stuff like the minute there's a third I mean this is true I think in reality too like the minute there's a third person the dynamic changes so it's like sometimes really needed for two characters to be without the third so that they can really talk about their feelings and, you know, and then, you know, hopefully you're making the right choices about which character needs to be with which character in those moments. As someone who spent so long thinking about the books, about the book readers, about the fans and wanting to give them like everything they want and everything and, and all of that, 
what has been the most enjoyable for you to see them react to something like a change maybe and like what the reaction has been and how have you been like, yes, we did it. (laughs) Um, The two that, well, the two that have been most exciting for me personally um, are, was the reaction to the flashback in the first episode and the Medusa story overall, which are basically two parts that are connected to each other. Um, that was really fun. Um, it was also like, you know, the, with the first one, it was very nerve wracking because I had never worked on a TV show that was an adaptation. <laughs> so it was like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like you care a lot about it and you just really hope other people like that you manage to show them why you care about it a lot. Um, and so that was really gratifying for me a lot because I, because I love it. And, and it was really, it was just, it was, it's just, overall thinking about Sally's character has been, I think for all of us, but I can only speak for myself, like just such a fun part of doing this, truly. Um, John was very careful to like credit you on the Medusa front uh, in the interview with Variety. So I, so I feel like emboldened to ask you specifically about the Medusa contribution. Um, how did this come about? Were they saying like, procedurally, whatever you can tell me, do they say, hey, Daf, what do you think we should do with Medusa? Or are you looking at the story and you're like, hey, I think we have an opportunity here to do something. I have my suspicions knowing you, but what <laughs> what, what was the order of operations? <laughs> um, okay. Well, first of all, I think, I think this is, this is the opportunity for me to, you know, to say the thing that I always want to say, because I would like to just credit John Steinberg and Dan Schatz for being the most supportive, wonderful people to work with, um, which is, you know, not just my opinion. This is, this is something you can see in the, like, if you go, if you go through IMDb for any of their shows, you will see how many people are in common from show to show, which I think is the testament to just how brilliant it is to work with them. So, um, and one aspect of that is um, I just honestly have never felt so seen and heard as I am when I work with them. Um, So the minute... There are certain things that like the minute, and I, I mean, this is something you know about me, um, is that just, I get, when I'm excited about something, I am just excited about it. And there's just really, there is just no way I'm not going to talk no about it. Yet. Really is. No stopping yet. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Um, so, so it's just like, there are certain things like the funny thing is I'm obsessed with Medusa and Athena. Um, I, I actually like, and part of the way I contribute to a writer's room, I think I said this already, but part of the way I contribute is like, I really love talking about archetypes and larger structures and Greek mythology has always been my go-to for that. I, I partly because I grew up with it because it was so important to me when I was a kid. So I know it better than a lot of other mythologies. Partly I do think that there's like, there are just some elements of it that just like, it's like any structure you would want for story could actually be found there, which is probably not true, but that's how it feels to me. So like 
I, anyone who's ever listened to my podcast about black sales will know that I, it is a go-to for me there too. In fact, we did a whole episode like that <laughs> with John Steinberg, where I used Greek mythology to analyze his show at him. Uh, <laughs> but, but, um, I listen, it, that episode may or may not have landed you a, a staff writing job. <laughs> it was definitely it, was, it so. was bold and hilarious. And, you know, luckily he and I were already friends. So I, that's part of, I think, why I felt like I'm allowed to just be like, let me cast all of your characters as Greek gods. <laughs> <laughs> we got someone, someone was asking us uh, to cast all of the Roy siblings on Succession oh, fun. as Greek gods. That's something we can think about if we want to uh, at some point in the future, Daphne That's and I. But so like, interesting. Uh, they were just because they were talking about like, I think off the back of Aries talking about Athena and like sort of how it felt a little like Roy sibling squabbling succession um, a bit in the person's yeah. story, which is because succession is drawing from Shakespeare and Shakespeare's drawing from Greek mythology, so it's all it's all one anyway. But like. Um, I just thought that was a funny prompt. Anyway, I love sorry. that. No, so that's a were... great prompt. I yes, I like to do that. Like I know there are other people who like to do these with other things, like like Harry Potter houses and such. For me, yeah. it was then I and it was funny. Like it was really fun because I actually was like reading. Um, I'm forgetting the author right. Oh, Edinger. There's a he's a Jungian uh, psychologist slash analyzer of story um, that that John uh, actually introduced me to because there's a. He wrote a book, a, like a Jungian analysis of Moby Dick, that was an inspiration in, uh, well, Moby Dick and the Jungian analysis of Moby Dick were both inspirations, um, particularly in season three of Black Sails. And um, so I just continued then to read all of his books. And he has one, a Greek mythology, like he has a few that touch on Greek mythology, but there's one specifically about Greek mythology. So I was actually reading his versions of the gods while trying to cast the Black Sails characters. And it was really fun. And yeah, and I'm like, that's, I mean, this is, I have already forgotten what the question was. Oh, right. Now I remember. But like, yes, the episode five, uh, you know, is a sibling episode. Like, you know, it's not an Aries episode. It's not a Hephaestus episode. It's a sibling episode because Athena is, doesn't appear there, but you know, but she's there, right? Because those three siblings are siblings. And so they have, I mean, this is how I, this is how all of us, you know, would talk about the Pantheon. They are a family. Barring, um, barring Zeus, who we know is going to appear in the finale because we've watched the trailers. Um, Athena is the god talked about the most that, that we don't see. Was there ever an idea that should we put Athena in season one? I feel like that probably was a conversation at some point, And I feel like the conversation I do remember was talking about like bringing her in strategically so that it's important that she showed up like that. So like, you know what I mean? It's like, it is almost like, it's almost like she's weightier right now because we only talk about her and haven't met her yet. And so like her, the kind of demands that her appearance, um, have the same weight to match her presence in the story. And there wasn't really a place for that in this story. Also, longing is such a, you know, is such a wonderful part of a story, right? So like, you can't, you can, I mean, you can, I mean, I think the Sally and Poseidon scene is, is proof, proof that you can actually depict longing when people are in each other's proximity, but uh, but sometimes the best longing 
requires that the person not be there. Um, and it's and it elevates her that everyone's talking about her, but we haven't seen her yet. So that entrance is, I don't know when we're going to do it or how we're going to do it, but that entrance is going to have to be pretty special. It's going to have to be good. Um, a lot of buildup. <laughs> and we will we will eagerly await any casting news. Um, but the, the reason we went down that last path was actually goes back to Medusa. So tell me, take us back to how the Medusa story got sort of more in depth. So yeah, I can't speak exactly to that. I can only speak to my experience of it. But the funny thing, and the reason why I started talking about how much I love working with John and Dan is like, there was a time when I used Athena and Medusa as a way to talk about characters also in Black Sands, not in Black Sands, uh, as a way to talk about characters in The Old Man. Um, so the funny thing is like, like not the version that Jessica Parker Kennedy says, but the funny thing is like, they were already aware that this is an archetypal relationship about gender and about how women relate to other women in a, in a world in which men are generally more powerful than women. Like, And power is such a big part of this story, right? Where you have demigods and monsters. Like, you know, there's they're the gods. I mean, the Titans also. I'm not going to talk about them right now, but... But there are the gods, and then there are all these other types of beings that have to live in a world in proximity to the gods, right? So, so like all this stuff about gender and power, and and you know, and what women often do to each other in relation to in a world where they are less empowered than men, or in general where people, what sometimes happens. When when power dynamics make people turn against each other, who you know one could argue maybe should be more aligned, uh, banding together. Yeah. Um, so just like all of that stuff was just kind of like stuff that they knew was important to me to begin with. So um, uh, so I I guess you know that's ended up being a bit you know a part of the direction it went. Um, wasn't, you know, it wasn't like something I was like, we must do this, but it was, you know, it was just, I think they, you know, they had had a preview. So they knew I was going to end up talking about this way of looking at things with, <laughs> yeah. and when we were talking about episode three and, and Monica, who was the writer of episode three and I, like, this was like, so we just had so much fun talking about this together. Like, it's really like, sh- she's amazing. And, and she and I just, just, we had so much fun just playing with this, like just, you know, thinking about how, how to depict this, you know, honoring the version to the, you know, that's in the book. Um, and also like taking it in, in, again, it's just that thing where it's like, you want, I don't think there's anything we did with Medusa that isn't in the story, maybe not in that chapter necessarily, but it's all rooted in stuff that exists in the greater story of the books. So those are all the elements. But yes, it was super fun for me. And yes, I do generally feel very heard and seen. And and this happens to be a story <laughs> that like I'm like hilariously obsessed with. That's amazing. I love how it complicated everything. You know what I mean? Because it's like, you know, I would say from from just from adapting one book, not the series, but one book, 
it is a much different view of that character. And still and yet, she is a threat as as their time together closes. You know what I mean? Like, she can be both someone who was terribly used and someone who is doing something that we are not actively rooting for at the same time. Isn't that all of yes. us? You know isn't what I mean? Like, isn't that just... <laughs> isn't that just... How it is in the world. Well, and sometimes we can want to have control over our anger and not, in the end, have control over our anger. And, you know, to just, I mean, she is a quote-unquote monster, but she's also, you know, us in a lot of ways. Like, she was a a really neat monster to have in the beginning because her experience— um, in any version of the myth, I think, or any version of of the character in the story, like she speaks so so clearly to the experience of these demigods. No, I mean absolutely, and 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 like sets a really a great tone for uh, you know especially complicating a uh, character like Poseidon, or you know where we've got Sally's here's Sally's version of Poseidon, and then here's Medusa's version of Poseidon, and both of those. Stories can be 100% true. They can. They can. I mean, right, which is going to be just like a giant question mark that I feel like, you know, that's part of what's fun about a story is like that we, as we learn more things and have different feelings and align with, you know, feel like we can identify with different characters, like though anything that came early on can be redefined and and viewers ideally, you know, are having a relationship with that that, that feels like you're... I mean, I think my favorite experience of story is when I think I know a thing and then then the story's like, but do you? And then and then I learn about myself because I have to engage with the what assumptions yeah, you made. Exactly. Yeah. Um, speaking of assumptions, this is not me digging for a spoiler, so please feel free to say <laughs> no, thank you, Joanna. But um there were some questions around when Annabeth leaves the underworld early, earlier than she does in the book, and it's a question of regret that traps her. Um, is that something that you feel like we should all be able to infer from what we've already seen, or is that something that you feel like we'll understand even better as the story goes on? Oh, that's a good question. Um, to be perfectly honest, I know how I read that, and I'm not sure if it's, this isn't even about like spoilers, not spoilers. This is my job and I, you know, I shouldn't spoil stuff, but it's, it's more like I actually, I think that that question is better left open because for the thing I just said, I think that I, I feel like even if people experience it as us answering that question, that question is best left open to some extent so that people who experience this very complicated character of Annabeth and her her very complicated arc going backwards and going forwards um i feel like i i hope that the experience will be that there's a little bit of room for people to um experience that in a way that's most meaningful for them i i don't mean to ask this might be like putting a little um, unnecessarily unnecessary anxiety juice on the fire, but like these kids are growing, man. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, I know. <laughs> I saw a side by side the other day of 
Percy and Annabeth in like their first episode together and then they're like in the most recent one and there's like Walker has grown like a foot taller than he was uh, you know they're like the same height and now he's like a foot over like looming over I know her. Twitter's having a um, lot of fun with that <laughs> <laughs> um but you know what is that what is I don't know how do you feel about that I mean I am not one of the people who makes decisions so I I can only speak for myself is that um I, I really hope that if that if we get to make season two, we get to do it soon before they grow more. Um, I don't know. Like, it's just it's. We, so we have to start like digging little holes right. for people to stand exactly. in, or get out the apple box for someone else to stand on. Um, I mean, it's, this is the Stranger Things problem. It was always going to be part of the process because the post production for this show is is so lengthy. Right? It's just they worked so hard. Yeah, effects. a lot of visual effects. Yeah. So many people worked so hard to get this show finished as quickly as they could and as well as they could. And and uh, so that's always going to be true of this show. Like it's, you know, trying trying to make a show that is both beautiful and feels like this very hard thing to do, which is a show based in realism. Like this, that you're ideally you feel like the chimera is actually in our world because that is how Rick created it. He created not a separate world, but a world within a, that is is coexisting with our world. You and I just can't see it because you and I, sadly, not seers and cannot see through the mist. <laughs> Yet. So far. Yet. Let's Who's hope. To say? Maybe someday. <laughs> The other thing I love, let me try to say something I love and ask it as a question rather than just saying f- statements at you. And and you're maybe you're going to just be like, yeah, Joanna, that's the point of the book. But I... I <laughs> Don't try to be I, more interesting than that. <laughs> no, but like something that I think is so interesting about comparing, again, to circle back to Sally Jackson, comparing this depiction of Percy Jackson versus Perseus or Percy Jackson versus any of the like demigods of Greek mythology of of your is that the whole point of those various um abandoned children of gods was for them to show their godly you know inheritance what the qualities that they have that come from their divine parents and they're like you know and then their heroism shown through or their valor shown through or their brilliance shown through and stuff like that and what i love about Percy and you guys are doing such a good job of underlining this, especially like, and the speech that Annabeth gives um, in the thrill ride, Oh love sequence, et cetera, about Percy is that what he is most, what is most important about him is how he's like his mom and not how he's like his dad. Um, So how do you make that a question? So can you talk about why that is of interest or importance to you? Uh, that That is of so much interest and importance to me. <laughs> and I think it might be the thing I most fell in love with in the books. I, it's hard to say most. There are a lot of things I fell in love with in the books. But, um, you know, I feel like in early talks, I don't remember who coined this, but like this idea of like radical humanity. Um, and just like that, that is so deep. I mean, those words do not come up in the books, obviously, nor in the show. But, like, it's so deep in the books. It's so embedded in the books that this idea that, like, Percy's greatest strength is not – I mean, he, you know, he has powers that will 
grow as he does. But I mean, okay, he's really tall, but they will grow as he does in the story. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but um, but the thing I love about Percy Jackson, the character, is that it is not his superpowers that are ultimately his greatest powers. His greatest powers are the connections he makes with other people and and what he's willing to do for those people and how he doesn't need to center himself. And so in a world, you know, anything that is based in Greek mythology is always going to be to some extent about glory. Uh, I'll say Cleos for John Steinberg because he loves that word. But, um, but um, the... So to create a character within that world who actually ends up when he is truly at his greatest heroic, it's not because he can control water or speak to horses. It is because of the person he is. It's it's who he is, not what he is as the son of Poseidon. Like, that's a tool that he can use for his, like, in a way, the way I see it, it's like his powers are what he can use to, to express his true heroism. And, and that is about the person he is, which, again, like he said in the first episode, I am Sally Jackson's son. And, and this is like the nature of a demigod. This is why this is why demigods are so interesting to me, and I think to a lot of people is like they are not just mini gods. They are both. They are both things. They are bridges between the godly world, the immortals, and the mortals. I, and I, I, on the one hand, I agree with you, but on the other hand, a thing that I love about Greek mythology is that the messiest humans in the stories are always the gods. The no, mess, no, for you know, sure. The, no, no, the you're right. The sloppiest people. Totally true. Gods. And right, I feel like the these books absolutely express <laughs> yeah. that too. And I, you know, this is like this is where the fun is for me. I think in in you know in doing the adaptation, it's like. They are so messy. <laughs> they are so, like, the humans are so much more together. No, that's true. But I'm just saying in terms of, like, again, if you think about hierarchy and power, not so much about, like, emotional messiness, which definitely the gods are more. Um, but, I mean, that actually makes it much more dangerous, right, to have these these all-power beings, all-powerful beings that, like, do not remotely have the maturity to be responsible about their power. <laughs> Who are impulsive and petty and, yeah. Right, right. And dangerous. Very dangerous. I'm I'm getting ready to let you off the hook and stop peppering you with questions. But I want to circle back (laughs) to, you mentioned the guardrails. And I like like thinking about it that way, that that Rick in the writer's room is like, here are some things we're not going to do. And you mentioned specifics like crusty or et cetera. But in terms of like, were there any big picture, whether from John and Dan or from Rick, um, this is what a Percy Jackson story is, and this is what it isn't. Like, for example, I will say, this is more of like a logistical example, but I, I love a flashback. Um, I know you made me watch Black Sails. I made you watch Lost. This is just yes, it's who true. we are as friends. <laughs> uh, so you know I love a flashback um, because I love Lost. 
But I remember before they slightly broke their rule that Weiss and Benioff, when they were doing Thrones for the first four seasons, were like, we don't do flashbacks in the show. We don't do it. It's not it's not that's not what Thrones is about. And then they're like, eh, OK, we're going to break our rule here and there. Um, were there any like big capital D do's and capital D's don'ts of a Percy Jackson story for you all? Interesting. Um I don't, I mean, I don't feel like there are any like, hello, writer's room, here are the mandates. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think we, I don't feel like there was any of that. Um, I mean, the thing I said about rooted in the real world, like, I feel like that was something that, that Rick, John and Dan, like all, like that was very important as just like an overall aesthetic, both visually, but also in story. I don't, yeah. I mean, obviously we did do flashbacks, but. I mean, I think that, you know, things, devices like flashbacks, you know, just from working with John and Dan on now on multiple shows, like devices like that um, are things one should always make sure that they are warranted, like that that is the best way to tell the story. Um, I think sometimes people lose track of like things that feel like flourishes, but if they are not actually doing the best job in the moment, then they are merely flourishes. Um, so that just feels like a general thing I've learned from being a person who works with them overall. I mean, just, you know, it is the intent of every single person on every level of the show to be true to the books. And I, Again, I don't mean true to every moment exactly as it happened, but true to the spirit of the books and and with the fans in mind. Like every person at every level just read them and reread them. I mean, the, you know, just props, costumes, like just overall experience of the art department because I got to be in meeting some and on set a bunch. So I was very lucky to like watch that process. Um, I mean, you know, you and I happen to know what the experience is of truly loving an adaptation of books that we truly love, which is how we started our conversation here, was talking about Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, So, in addition to the amazing experience of getting to meet Dan Hanna (laughs) (laughs) and tell him what a fan I am... um, we, I mean, we very much wanted these these this show to be truly satisfying to people who've never read the books, but also truly satisfying to people who have loved them dearly, have incorporated them. You know, kids reading these books. Like I, I know so many kids and young adults who are like, these were my first books. This is how I became a reader. Just like that they have become part of their personalities, like part of who they understand themselves to be. My nephew is obsessed, obsessed uh, with these books. That. I don't know. Actually, I don't I don't know if he's watched the show only because they don't watch any television oh, uh, in okay. their house. Um, so it's possible he hasn't seen the show. But I feel like if he's going to watch any show, it's going to be this one. And I haven't I haven't checked in to see if they're doing that. But um, yeah. I it feels listening to you talk, listening to John talk, it's so crystal clear, could not be clearer that you guys know what a sort of precious thing you have. Uh, you know, it what, is this, such uh, an honor to be perfectly honest. Like it is, it's an amazing thing to be able 
to be any part of hopefully making people who love this story love a new version of it. I've heard so many people and a lot of people who are just new to the story just like really and I think I think that story I think the reaction you hear most of all yeah there there are plenty of the detractors exist you know they exist I of know course, they exist of course uh, people who are it's not what they wanted that that exists but also the main reaction I've been seeing um outside of that is people being like this is so much better than it than it even needed to be do you know what I mean that there's just like a depth of story and a level of care and a level of entertainment that most stories directed or starring, you know, pre-adolescent kids, adolescent kids are, don't feel like they need to reach, you know? And you guys were like, well, what if, what if that story is also as, as deep as we could make it, you know? And so congratulations. Thank you. you. That was definitely our hope. (laughs) We're loving it. Mal and I love it, as you know. Um, okay, that that makes me that made me so happy to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Like I I don't think I imagined long before I was a podcaster and I listened to you podcasting about Game of Thrones and loved your coverage. Like I don't think if someone had told me back then, like, oh, someday Joanna Robinson is gonna be talking about a show that you were a writer. <laughs> that would have cracked me up. <laughs> Here we are. I never imagined. Here we are. Um, thank you so much for chatting with me. I'm really excited to see the finale and see how that thank all plays you. out. I have like other questions I want to ask you, but they're all like, I know your answer is just going to be like, stay tuned. <laughs> <Maybe this week. laughs> so I'll just, I'll just spare you that and spare everyone like uh, that procedure. But um this has been wonderful. I, I, you know, you know me. I love talking about process. I love talking about mythology. I love talking to you. So what a joy for mm. me and a treat. Thank me you. too. Thank you so much for inviting me on. All right. That does it for our little mini Percy Jackson finale preview. Thank you so much to the great Daphne Olive for that conversation. Thank you, as always, to Steve Allman for editing it. Thank you to Arjuna Rangapal for his production work. Always, everywhere, always. And to Jomia Dinaran, the the great traveler, for his work on The Social. And I said, we'll see you on Friday with our Percy Jackson finale recap, commiseration, exultation. And I'll be back for that. And until then, stay bad, babies. All right, bye. Bye.